Hey, it's Rebecca, and you can hear new episodes of No Limits four days early on TuneIn. At a certain point, I realized this is what somebody would do if they were going to write a book. And then I got to the point where I thought, well, you know what? I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, the woman who's made a career around happiness and how to find it. Gretchen Rubin is a best-selling author and top podcaster who was once on the path to becoming a high-powered lawyer, until one day when she had an epiphany that changed everything. Gretchen Rubin, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Well, we are thrilled to have you. Best-selling author. You just released your new book, The Four Tendencies, that was released earlier in September of this year. Um, And you have a great podcast yourself, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Yes. And I want to get into happiness with you, and I I really want to go deep on the topic because I, I love where you go with it and how you're thinking about it. But I also am finding your backstory really extraordinary. Uh The fact that you were really on this very, in my opinion, structured path, undergrad at Yale, Yale Law School. Then you are, uh, you're working for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah, I was clerking for her. Clerking for her. And and for those of you out there who who might not understand how important a job like (laughs) that is or how hard it is, that is the kind of job that one in a million people get access to. Yeah, yeah. No, somebody once said to me, like, oh, do you have to be a lawyer for that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, you do have to be a lawyer for that. Yeah, you have to go to law school for that job. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, it is, was a really, really exciting opportunity to do, like to clerk on the Supreme Court. Yeah, it was amazing. And yet here you are in the middle of that opportunity and you have some sort of personal epiphany. Yes, you know, I had st- I one of the things about me is I will frequently get obsessed with subjects. This happens to me all the time. I'll get obsessed with something. And at that time, I became obsessed with what to me seemed like one subject, which was power, money, fame, sex. I was like, what am I interested in that everybody in the world is interested <laughs> in? Power, money, fame, sex. And I became obsessed with that subject and I was writing and writing and writing about it as I was clerking. It was sort of my hobby. And then at a certain point I realized this is what somebody would do if they were going to write a book. Um, I sort of have started writing a book without realizing it. And and then I got to the point where I thought, well, you know what? I really would like to try to write a book. I would I would like to actually see if I could become a book writer. Um, at a certain point, I decided that I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And what was the reasoning behind that? Um, well, you know, it's interesting about writing and and. And I think people know this about writing, but I think it's true of a lot of professions, actually. Some people feel almost a compulsion to have a certain kind of profession. Certainly some doctors feel like they're just called to be doctors in a way that is sort of, they can't go against it, or people who really want to be teachers. Interestingly, I've been to a lot of, my for some reason, my family goes to a lot of sort of uh, artsy circuses. We go to a lot of circuses. And if <laughs> artsy circuses. Yeah, 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 like these strange circuses. And one of the things you see, <laughs> if you read the, like, the, 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 um, the, what do you call that book that you get with the, when you go to a show? You like get, the playbook the play, yeah, If you read the playbook and you read the thank you, it's clearly, it's clear that many people are circus performers feel a tremendous compulsion to go and do these kinds of professions. And I felt that way. For me, this call to writing, once I had a subject 
and had this idea that I wanted to turn it into a book. It became, it was just this, you know, it was, it was the Death Star that had me in its, in its, you know, gravitational field. And it was just pulling me towards it. And so, um, so it was really that I felt very compelled toward it. It wasn't so much a rejection of laws, just feeling like a, re- a really overwhelming desire to try something specifically to try writing that book. And and when you set out to write the book in the first place, what was the biggest surprise to you? Well, one of the things that I just was, I wasn't even surprised because I was too ignorant even to be surprised was, you know, the, the big challenge, I think the biggest challenge often is to get an agent. You know, right. if you want to be traditionally published, at that time, there was only traditional publishing. Now, of course, self-publishing is a huge thing that many people do with great success and enjoyment. But if you want to be traditionally published, you really have to have an agent. And that is a, that's a very, very big challenge. How and, did you find yours? Um, you know, I just went through everybody that I knew, worked all my contacts, sent out tons and tons of proposals. Um, and, uh, and I've been with the same agent the whole time. Um, I have a brilliant agent who's a tremendous partner to me. So I feel incredibly lucky. Um, we were both very young and inexperienced. So it was lovely that we found each other. Um, but uh, but that was surprising because I think a lot of times people feel like, oh, you know, it's it's sort of the writing process. In a way, the yeah. writing process is the part that you're the most in control of um, where you have to collaborate with other people. That's that I think is, is is can be tougher where you have to get other people to do what you need them to do for you or to take an interest in you and to believe in you, you know, like whether they're an agent that, who's going to represent you or an editor who's going to buy the book. Yeah, you have to get them to come along, which is the beauty of self-publishing, which is that you can just like get it out in the world. Of course, that's a whole different set of challenges, but um, but you don't have to convince these gatekeepers to go go along with you. So you, you've written now for multiple decades about happiness. Uh, yeah, has. Yeah, I've written, uh, I've written a decade eight, and yeah. a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, like yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I was thinking about it before our conversation and I'm wondering if it's either me and the moment I'm at in my life or us and the moment we're at as a as a humanity. Mm hmm. Do you think this topic of happiness has gained in momentum? Mm. Well, I think part of it is probably the t- your time of life. But I think part of it is I, I do think there's a lot in culture now about happiness. Part of it is that it became much more a subject of scientific research. And I think that's a lot of conversation is sparked by like, oh, there's this interesting study. Or did you see that this research has this surprising result? And so that gives people something to talk about. And I think also in kind of in our culture where we've got two things happening simultaneously that paradoxically both, I think, build uh, build towards an interest in happiness. One is that if you look from a historical perspective, we're at a time of immense security and prosperity. I mean, it's just like no matter how bad it seems like things are going right now, it's like if you take the long view, we got it pretty good. So we have the luxury of saying, I want to care about transcendent matters. I'm not just like, you know, scraping by with the very survival survival. I really do have time to think, like, do I have fulfilling relationships? Do I have meaningful work? Am I connecting with the world in a way that um, seems meaningful? So we have that. And then at the other time, I th- on the other hand, I think that there's a lot of feeling of uncertainty. I mean, even something like if you go back to the, the grand, Great Recession, gave people this tremendous feeling of uncertainty that I think we're still, and certainly this last year, there's just seems like, you know, there's just so many things going on in the world. And I think when that happens, many people are like, okay, well, there's everything going on in the world. What can I do sort of within my own ambit of control to try to make sure that I'm as happy as I can be? So I think both those things paradoxically contribute to it. They're they're sort of pointing in opposite directions, but they lead you both to being interested in happiness. You are certainly a lifelong student. That's <laughs> that's so clear. 
As you have fallen down this rabbit hole in the pursuit of happiness, what is the most shocking thing that you've personally found about happiness? Well, one of the things that really surprised me is if you look at the research, they say over and over, well, novelty and challenge brings happiness. And and people who do new things, even people who do things as, as kind of mundane as go to new restaurants rather than like going to their same favorite <laughs> diner every time are happier and that challenge brings happiness. And when I started studying happiness, I thought, well, maybe the research shows this, but I it's just not going to be true for me. I'm a person who likes familiarity and mastery. I eat the same food all the time. I rarely leave my neighborhood. I, you know, I, I do very few things all the time. You know, I'm not well-rounded. Um, but what I found is, okay, the research is correct. Novelty and challenge do bring happiness. And you have to find the novelty and challenge that's appropriate for you. Like for me, deciding that I was going to go bungee jumping every weekend would not be a good <laughs> form of novelty and challenge for me. But like I have a podcast myself and that felt very challenging, very new, very scary. And then it became this huge engine of happiness. And so that was something that surprised me because I was like, well, I don't care what the experts say. It's not true for me. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, they're right. It is true for me, too. But that's a really interesting point, because hearing that, like the bungee jumping thing, I would say the exact same thing. Like, right. Hell no. I am yeah. not going bungee right. jumping no matter what. Not every week. It never. Right. Because right. I don't care. Right. Because that's well, not going to bring me happiness. Right. Exactly. But then you take a step back and people are giving you some ideas. Yeah. How much of the time do you listen to that voice inside versus saying, well, wait, actually, if you don't do this, it's going to shut down an opportunity and maybe you're not going to. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. Because for you, I'm yeah. sure originally with the podcast, there might have been a voice inside that was like, no, I don't think this is going to be right for me. Yeah, yeah. But you overrode yeah. that in some way. I think that you're pointing to like one of the most like crucial tensions within happiness and one that really isn't susceptible to being solved, which is on the one hand, we want to accept ourselves. And on the other hand, we want to expect more from ourselves. And so for each one of us is the decision of like, when do I say, you know, this is just the natural limitation of my nature. I'm not going to go bungee jumping. I'm never going to go bungee jumping. It doesn't make any sense for me. I'm just going to reject that. It's not going to make my life better. I don't need to push myself to do it. And when do you say, I can expect more for myself. This is scary for me, but this is the kind of thing that I can imagine myself doing and enjoying. And of course, doing things that are novelty and novel and challenging can make you feel stupid. It can be frustrating and it can make you feel angry and insecure. Um, it can be scary. Um, and so you have to put up with those negative emotions. But I, I really I think for each one of us, we have to sort of think that through on, on our own. There's no one right answer for everyone because for everybody that line is different. One of the things I like about the four tendencies mm. is you go through these four different tendencies. There's a quiz online which yes. I took. I'm, I will I will tell you. I will reveal my Ooh, my tendency. I cannot wait to hear. But I'm curious. So the the four different tendencies are upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Yes. When you meet somebody. Do you kind of get a sense for who they are right off the bat? Well, it depends on what they're talking about. But if they're talking about certain things, yes, I will start to like or, or like certain things that they might say um, can give me can give me a sense of it. Yeah. Or like I can be watching TV or reading a memoir and I'll be like, oh, OK, I'm getting I'm getting a cl pretty clear picture now of what you are. So yeah. so walk us through what these four right. different personality types are. More from our discussion after a quick word from our sponsor. Are you hiring? Join the over 3 million businesses that use Indeed.com for hiring. You can post a job in minutes and manage your candidates from an easy-to-use dashboard. Post your next job on the world's number one job site, Indeed.com. So walk us through what these four right. different personality types are. So it has to do with how you meet, how you respond to expectations, which sounds very dry, but it's actually super juicy. So 
So we all face outer expectations, which is like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And then there's inner expectations, which is your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, your own desire to you know get back into playing guitar. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. And you're an upholder. I'm an upholder. So many things in my life became clear to me when I realized that I'm an upholder and most people aren't. Um, <laughs> then questioners question all expectations. They'll do it if they think it makes sense. So they, they make everything an inner expectation because if it meets their standard, they will meet that expectation. If it fails their standard, they will resist. And they typically resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, inefficient, unfair, un, you know, or uh, unjustified. Um, they always want to know why. Then, Your husband is okay. A my husband's a questioner too. Okay, we will talk later. Um, <laughs> then obligers, obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my first insight into this whole framework when a friend said to me, "I don't understand it." When I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, it took me months and months and months um, to figure out the answer. But the answer is, when you had a team and a coach waiting for you, you had no trouble showing up. When you were just trying to go on your own, you struggled. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't even want to tell themselves what to do. Like, they wouldn't sign up for a 10 a.m. woodworking class every Saturday because they're going to think, I don't know what I'm going to want to do next Saturday. And just the fact that somebody's expecting me to show up at 10 a.m. is just is going to annoy me. <laughs> so they want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. So these are the four. How, many, how much overlap is there in people? Between those four different tendencies. Well, so I believe that everyone is a core tendency, like you, you're, you're in a core tendency, but each tendency does overlap with other tendencies. And so sometimes you tip one way or another. So for instance, I'm an upholder and upholders are like obligers and that we both readily meet outer expectations, but upholders are, are also like questioners and that we both readily meet inner expectations. So I happen to be an upholder who tips to questioner, but some upholders tip to obliger. And so that kind of colors how uh, you express the tendency. And is there, are there correlations between which tendency you have and what kind of profession you will ultimately do? So this is something a lot of people ask. So one of the things is that, it, that this is just one very narrow slice of your personality. So if we had 50 questioners lined up, uh, they would look very different from each other depending on how analytical they were, how intellectual they were, how curious they were, how considerate of other people's feelings they were, how ambitious they were, how extroverted or introverted they were, how controlling they were, how neurotic they were. All these things would be different. So they would, they would look very different from each other. But into, as to one thing, I ask you to do something, what's your response? Why should I? In that way, they would all sound alike. So when you think about why somebody's going to succeed as a profession, of course, tons of things go into it. It's like, you know, so sometimes people are like, well, I'm a journalist, so obviously I'm a questioner. Or, you know, um, I'm in private client. Different cli meaning. Yeah, I'm a private client services. Of course, I'm an obliger. And it's not that, it's not that simple <laughs> because so many factors come into play. But you definitely do see things like rebels tend to do well Um in situations where like maybe not every day is different. As an upholder, I love the idea of having every day exactly the same. Like my fantasy would be to have the life of a Benedictine monk. But <laughs> rebels want, like they, they often like every, have it, having every day be different. So they might be, they might thrive in like sales where they're making different calls or they're like managing different field offices or they're working for themselves. And so um, 
but but it's but there's a lot of things going on. Um, so so it's not really easy to say one to one. But you can certainly think think well. This given my tendency, is that going to work for me in this work environment, or might it might it make this work environment less um, less appealing? For instance, if you're a questioner, some workplaces really value and reward questioners' drive to efficiency and their questions for why and their desire to make things work better. Some workplaces and some bosses do not like that. Right. They don't want to have, they feel thin skinned. They don't want to have their judgment question. They don't want to have to explain. It's like, this is what corporate said we're going to do. Like, there's just really no room for argument about that. And so if you're a questioner, you might, you know, talk to some people if you're applying for a job and be like, hmm, is this going to, is my, how is this going to go over? Given how I approach the world, is this the kind of place where I can thrive? Or is this the kind of place where I might run into problems given my my perspective on the world so i am i'm sorry to say ah an obliger you are well that's the they're the rock of the world they're the biggest becoming a rebel they're the biggest tendency (laughs) no it's a great tendency to be they're great they're great they're the typo they 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 pair up the most easily with other tendencies and they're the biggest tendency for both men and women so you're in great company why do you think that is that they're the biggest tendency. Probably evolutionary. I mean, I think that these are hardwired. So it's probably like, why are a certain number of people extroverted and a certain number of people introverted? There's probably some kind of evolutionary basis for that. And I think that all of us, um, we either are obligers or we have many obligers in our life. So I think it's worth for everybody to really understand the, the, the obliger perspective and to try to accommodate it. Because no matter what, if you're managing a large team, if you have a big, if you have a classroom, if you're designing a program or a device or a curriculum that's meant to appeal to a lot of people, you're going to have a lot of obligers. And right behind them is questioner. That's the second largest tendency. Rebel is the smallest tendency. It's the longest chapter in the book, but it's the smallest number of people. And then upholder, my tendency is only slightly larger. So most people are questioners or obligers. So you're in good company. It's. I think it's an interesting thing because part of the, the framework that you set out for an obliger, for example, is that they're thinking about other people and they're they're essentially trying to please. No. 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 Key, 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 key difference. Okay. So some people think, so so a mistake that obligers, I think, given my framework, yes. I think, uh, there's two mistakes that obligers make. Sometimes they, they see this pattern that they readily meet outer expectations and struggle to meet inner expectations. And they interpret it as, I choose to please others rather than pleasing myself. That's not true because I have met many curmudgeonly obligers. There's not you don't you're not necessarily a people pleaser. Oh, okay. and it's and sometimes obligers will say I put others first and I put myself last, so that it's a matter of sort of priorities. That's an important mistake because it suggests that well, if outer expectations were washed away, then I would nece- then I would meet inner expectations because there'd be nothing in my way. If if they would so if I would quit my demanding job, then I would have no trouble doing my side hustle. If I would retire early, then I would have time to do everything on my bucket list. But that's not true. To me, what's going on is that you're readily meeting outer expectations but struggling to meet inner expectations. And so the way to think about that is that if there's to meet an inner expectation, all you need to do is to plug in outer accountability. Because once that outer accountability is in place, then you're going to feel the same desire to meet that expectation as you did when it's from somebody else. And so if you want to read more, join a book group. If you want to exercise, you could work out with a trainer, you could join a class, you could sign up for a charity 5k where they won't make as much money if you don't show up you could think of your duty to be a good role model you could think of how disappointed your dog's going to be if you don't take him for his daily run um there's a million ways to create outer accountability once you realize that that's what you need but it really is that 
And a lot of times there's a lot of emotions and explanations around that pattern of readily meeting outer and struggling to meet inner. And I think if you really just strip it down to that very basic expectation meeting resisting, then everything becomes much clearer and how to solve it. When you were on this legal path earlier on in life and you make this total left turn, what did the family say at the time? Well, I was really lucky because um, everyone in my family, my husband also was leaving law at the very same time that I was. And did that help? Was that? It, no, it was helpful yeah. because and it was really helpful with him because like we sort of did it simultaneously and he wanted to go into finance. So like I bought a book called How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. And he t- took a book, it, it took a class at night called something, you know, financial accounting or something. Some kind of. You know. And and then we moved from we were living in Washington, D.C. We moved to New York. And at that point, we were like, we're 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 moving into new position, into new professions. And I remember there was a day where we got our, our, our letter from the New York bar asking us for our annual bar fees, which are not inconsiderable. And I was like, are we going to pay our bar fees? A polder than I am. I'm like, maybe we should just do it and like, you know, keep maintain our status as admitted to the bar. And my husband's a questioner. He's like, why would we pay all this money? We're never going to practice law again. I was like, okay, you're right. So, um, so that was good. But then also my family, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very close to my family. I'm very influenced by my family. And now that I'm a parent myself, I really do respect even more how, how willingly they supported me. Because um, I think sometimes with every good intention and out of the deepest love, people, they don't want you to risk failure. They don't want to see you disappointed. They don't, they're not sure how this is going to work out. And they want you to do something that feels safer because they want to protect you. But the problem is there is no safe place. And, um, and so I really, you know, um, my family was very, you know, and here I had just, I kind of had every credential a person could have in law. And then I was like, oh, I'm just going to chuck that out and start over from nothing. I literally, I didn't have a short story. I didn't have a clip. I hadn't been on the college newspaper. I mean, I had nothing. And they were like, this is great. You know, if you want to try it, that's great. But my sister at that time, who's younger than I am, um, she was already a professional writer. So I think that helped too, that I had somebody very close in a completely different way. Um, but I knew somebody else who was, a, you know, in my family who was a professional writer. Did you ever talk to Justice Sandra Day O'Connor about the choice? Oh, yeah. You know, and she's really supportive. And I'm not even like the baddiest um, reversal that of her clerk. She has a clerk who is a um, opera singer. No Full-time way. opera singer. Yeah. He eventually, he sort of, he sort of did it on the side and then it did it part-time. And like last I checked in with him, he was doing it full-time. So, so yeah, it's like some, she's used to it. She's very supportive of everything. Um, but it was interesting when I was writing the happiness project, I asked her, well, just as kind of like, what do you think is the secret to happiness? And she answered me right away. She knew exactly what her answer was. And she said it was work worth doing. And the more I've thought about that, the more I've realized that's really, really good answer. And what you would consider work, you know, many people have very different ideas of what that would be. But work worth doing is, you know, is a key part of a happy life. In that vein, I wonder, and this is something that comes up here a lot, work worth doing. So there there are these points in your life where... You almost have to pay your dues or not almost. You do have to pay your dues in order to get to that sort of work worth doing state. Yeah. And 
it's something that I, in these conversations that happen here on No Limits, that I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, because on the one hand, it's doing the work that you really want to do and being the authentic person that you yeah. are meant to be. But at the same time, it's really hard to get there yes. without doing the building yes. block things. I mean, I'm sure there were classes that you took yeah. at Yale yeah. that were not the enjoyable yeah. ones, but you had to take them in order yeah. to get to Yale Law School. And then there, yeah. there were things you had to do to get to Justice Sandra Day yeah. O'Connor. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I can't remember who said this now. It's like one of the ye olde English essayists. He said something like, the true test of a vocation is the love of the drudgery involved. And I, I think with everything that you do, there's parts of it. Sometimes there's whole phases where you're doing grunt work that seems like you don't want, it's not interesting. And then with everything that you do, there's parts of it that you don't like or that, fee, you know, you wish you could just delegate, but sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. So I think really it is just sort of keeping your eye on whatever it is, your ultimate purpose. Like, you know, if you really want this job and you're like, okay, well, I really want to get a job as, uh, you know, writing for a television show. But in order to put myself in a position to get a job like that, I'm going to have to work for an agent for a couple of years so that I like learn the business, learn the people, network, all this. It's like, okay, you know, maybe it's not your ideal job right now, but you're going to do it because it's going to, but, but you're right. Part of it is you don't, you don't know it's, you're going to get there. You don't know you're going to get there. So as my father says, always enjoy the process. Yes. Like, you, you know, you don't want to. And, and also sometimes, you know, um, you do the drudge work and uh, you kind of fool yourself that you're on a certain path. So I think it's one of these things where it's a really important question to ask all the time. Like, why am I doing this? Um, is this getting me closer to where I want to go? Is it? Is it, it? Am I justified in in investing this time? It's like if you want to be a doctor, you're going to go to medical school. Like, there's just no way around that. Um, but sometimes it's not so clear. Like, yeah, and it's not clear what the right way. So I think it's it's not it's something that all of us have to think about all the time. Like, is this what I want to be doing with my time? Is right. this is this am I enjoying it right now? Am I getting value out of it? Or is it at least getting me closer to something that I ultimately want? Yep. And I think, you know, because one of the things in a ha in happiness, you know, sometimes people get very focused like, oh, enjoy the present. It's, you know, all we have is now. But it's like, but a life only thinking about now would not be a good life. You have to think about not just what's going to give you pleasure right this minute, but like what's going to build a happy life overall. And sometimes that means doing things that you don't feel like doing in the present, whether depriving yourself of something or taking on a task that you don't feel like doing um, because you know that it's it's going to pay off. I say this when the sink is full of dishes. Uh-huh. And yeah. you know that the apartment's yeah. going to start to smell. Yeah, you yeah, just yeah. Have to, yeah, you just suck it up. You're not going to be as happy yes. if, yeah. if it gets really gross. Yes. So you just yes. got to suck it up and put yes. it in the dishwasher. Yes. Well, one thing that can work for obligers is you think about the future self. So you think, well... Right now, Rebecca doesn't want to do it. Future Rebecca is going to be so happy when she wakes up in the morning and the kitchen is clean. So I'm going to do it for, for future Rebecca. She's going to be so pleased. Future Rebecca. She's yeah. a good one. Yeah. We appreciate her. <laughs> What's been the toughest lesson for you to learn along the path? You know, my first personal commandment is to be Gretchen. And I think this is like the great challenge of our, everyone's life. If, you know, f feel free to substitute your own name for be Gretchen. But, you know, <laughs> I but, want to be Gretchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, turn, it, it is really hard to know yourself and to do what's right for you. And I feel like for a long time, I didn't even really think about it. You know, I didn't, I didn't really think like, well, what, what is, what's right for me? What do I want? What kind of person am I? It just like didn't even occur to me to think about it very much. Um, now, I, now I think about it all the time. Um, and I, and, and, but that was something that I think I, I could have gotten to a lot of places quicker if I'd thought, well, is this a way to be Gretchen or not? 
as an upholder, sometimes you're like, well, can I do this? And it's like, yes, I can do that. It's like, but why, but why would I do that? That's why it's useful to be married to a questioner. He's always like, why would you do that? I'm like, good question. Is there anything recent that you can think of where just be Gretchen would have been the answer? And if you had just come to it a little faster? Mm. Well, it's funny. I mean, not this is such a mundane thing, but, you know, I've been reading all this research and I'm sure you've seen it too. And it's always like, oh, don't do your email in your social media first thing in the morning because like that's when you're fresh and you should start off with like heavy intellectual work where you're, you know, like and, and, and you know, and save your email until like 11 a.m. or whatever. And yeah, I sort of had this in my mind and kept feeling like I was doing it wrong because I would get up at 6 a.m. and like the first thing I did was check my email and social media stuff, even though I am a total morning person and definitely at my most intellectually strong in the morning and will often front load um, something if I have something challenging to do, try to do it as early in the morning as possible. So I knew that was true for me. Um, but I felt like I was sort of like, "Ooh, I'm doing it wrong and I should change. And I'm like, well, I can't focus on anything until I'm like, what's in my email? Like, I got to check and see what's going on in social media. I'm like, why am I getting distracted by like these fake experts telling me how to do my business? It's like, be Gretchen. I can't focus until I've read my emails. Like I, this is like, that's the fact of it. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel like I should be doing it some other way. Yeah. Boo on those fake experts. Fake, I know. (laughs) There's so many of them. So many charlatans out there. That's a whole other conversation. Yes. I'm sure they drive you insane because you've done your research and spent so much work on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's definitely the astrology and the astronomy where when it comes to these uh, happiness and related subjects, for sure. I like that. Worst advice you've received along the way? Well, interesting. Um, so my the book that I wrote before, The Four Tendencies, was a book called Better Than Before, which is about the 21 strategies that we can use to make or break our habits. And in there, I talk about the strategy of abstaining. And this was because I had a huge lightning bolt that I had been given bad advice my whole life, and I had completely accepted it, even though it never worked. Um, for a long time, I really struggled with a sweet tooth. Like I have a tremendous, everybody in my family has a tremendous sweet tooth. I have a tremendous sweet tooth. And I spent a lot of time like, you know, oh, it's just one bite-sized chocolate bar. Oh, it's just two. Oh, yes, it's my birthday. Oh, yeah, I was so good yesterday. And, uh, and, so, and people kept saying to me, this was the bad advice. The bad advice was like, just indulge in moderation. Have one cookie, have one square of fine chocolate, have half a dish of ice cream, just have a little bit for your sweet tooth and then stop. And then finally, I read this line. Samuel Johnson is one of my favorite writers. He's an 18th century, you know, essayist and lexicographer. And he somebody, he walked into a party and somebody said to, uh, said to him, would you take a little wine? And he said, I can't take a little. Abstinence is as easy to me as temperance would be difficult. Meaning I can have none, that's easy, but I can't have a little bit. And when I read that, I was like, that's me. And then, and so in Better Than Before, I wrote about the strategy of abstaining, which is that for a lot of people, yes. it's easier to have none. And all these moderators, so there's abstainers and moderators. Moderators are like, just have a little bit. That's all you need. And that works for moderators. That's great advice for moderators. But some people like me are abstainers, and it's easier for us to have none. And I mean, people will say, well, it's easy for you to have none because you have so much willpower. I'm like, I don't have enough willpower to have a little bit. It's easier to have none. And once I realized that, I just like now I don't I, I don't even really eat carbs except for like nuts. Um, I just gave wow. gave it all up altogether. And I find it so freeing and I love it so much. And for so long, though, people kept saying like, well, that's too rigid. You can't like deny yourself so much. It's not healthy. Um, you're just going to binge if you if you never, you, you know, if you try to deny mm-hmm. yourself altogether. And I'm like, 
It's just not true. It might be true for you. Some people are moderators. But for me, it's really easier to have none. And like, it was just a revelation to me to realize that I could just... And it sounds... Moderation is pleasant to the wise. It sounds very sensible. Yeah. 80-20 rule. Have a cheat day. I mean, I've heard it all. And it just doesn't work, you know? And I'm just like, if it doesn't work for you to have a little bit, try having none. And I've heard from so many people saying, I didn't know this was a thing. And I'm like, it's totally a thing. Join the crowd. Um, and if it's easier for you to have none, have none. Um, I am. I, I actually agree with that. Oh, really? Are you- for me, I'm I'm not a moderator. Um, I'm not completely. I, I'm not as rigid. I don't. I don't. I, I just kind of like indulge too much in things and just uh-huh. allow for it. That's yeah. my tendency. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but because um, I'm not accountable to myself. Right. Right right, 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 right. But I have found that. um I don't keep things in the house. Like I won't keep oh, things in the apartment That's if smart. I don't want to consume them That's because smart. I know if there's a box of something that I like, then I'm going to enjoy a lot of it. So that's the strategy of inconvenience, which yeah. is like if you're if it's easy, you'll go to the cabinet and get right. it. If you have to drive to the store to buy like exactly. an ice cream cone, you're not going to do it. And since um, Magnolia is located uh, right across the street. Oh, yeah. You know, I walked by there on my <laughs> way here so today. <laughs> Ooh, the smell. Do they like pump it onto the street? Yes. But so one thing about abstaining is like a lot of times we're a mix. Like I can be a moderator about wine. Uh-huh. I don't really care about wine, so yeah. I can have half a glass. But a friend of mine is like, there's no wine or there's four glasses of wine. There's no middle ground. And so a lot of times it's like, or my sister, it's French fries. She, that's her kryptonite and so it is possible to be a mix but I think what you're doing is working really well which is like if I don't want to eat it just don't have it around and then I don't even get to the place where I have to decide what to do with it there's no decision to be made that's the easiest thing yeah. you know it's like don't walk down the street that has Magnolia Bakery on it. You know, it's like that's yeah. Find a new apartment. Yeah, I know. Oh, right. Do you live right here? I there? live right across. Oh, the street. wow. But it's funny. I've heard from some. That's a big thing in New York City. Dangerous. People will often say, like, "What is the what's the temptation zone that's right by their apartment?" It seems like wherever you move, there's one hot spot where you're like. I got to walk a mile out of my way if I'm going to avoid yeah. this, well, you know, thanks the rice Amazon. pudding shop or Yeah, whatever. exactly. And now Amazon will have whatever you want to your house for free in a matter of a few minutes. So, Well, this is what the, my, whole book, my whole book, Better Than Before, <laughs> is about habit change. And I have like a million things to do. You should to re-release eat it like okay. in the age of Amazon. Like now uh, it's like for, for, for online shopping. Oh, well, I have, a quick, I have a quick solution for that. Yeah. Don't have a one-click account. Every time you do it, do it as a guest. If you have to enter your information every single time, you will slow down. It's like make it more inconvenient. So cancel your account and you just sign in afresh every single time. Or another thing you can do is give yourself a super complicated password. Like, oh, you know, yep. d- d- disable one click where you don't need to enter the password. But like do something like do I really want to be ordering this or is it just an impulse control problem? You know, it's like if you're typing that out, it's going to give you a second to be like, wait a minute. Do I really need like a thousand pounds of, you know, butter, butter cookies? No, I don't. <laughs> Gretchen, this was an awesome conversation. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. I feel like we could talk all day. I, I feel the same way. I love your podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. The book, The Four Tendencies, people can find it, yep. um, hopefully with one-click shopping, perhaps. Yes, yes um. <laughs> perhaps. But be wise. Don't abuse that one click. Yes. And even if you're if you're not immediately thinking about the book, go take the quiz because I found that the quiz 
after I took it, I was really surprised and I, I enjoyed mm. it a lot. Good questions yeah, there, too. The, and the quiz, if you want to take it online, is at happiercast.com slash quiz. And more than a million people now have taken that quiz online. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gretchen. Thank you. Best wishes with all you're doing. Oh, thank you. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Natalie Hughes. She's the founding director of The Fashion Digital, which is a social media agency dedicated to luxury fashion brands and companies. Natalie is based in London. We love the international here on No Limits. She's a social media consultant and editor who's worked in the fashion industry for nearly a decade. She started out in journalism, writing fashion features for various magazines before becoming the social media editor at net a But after a few years of working for someone else, Natalie decided to do it her own way. She made it her own. She created a team and she started an agency. The Fashion Digital was born. She says her biggest turning point was moving from editorial magazines to taking a social media centric role at net a not just because it enhanced her digital know-how and it helped pave the way for her career in social media, but also because she got to know Natalie Massonet, the founder of net a one-on-one. Natalie Massonet was a huge inspiration. Seeing another woman out doing it herself was a huge inspiration to Natalie Hughes. Natalie's game-changing decision was hiring her first employee. She says that she was working alone and way over capacity for way too long, and the moment that she realized she could scale her one-woman freelance business to a full-fledged agency was the ultimate turning point for the fashion digital. So what advice would Natalie give herself if she could go back in time, back to the beginning? She says, separate work and home life. Natalie says that she now tries to finish her workday at a reasonable hour and then make a concerted effort to clock off. She also has a rule of no emails, once she's on the train home. That's a hard rule to stick to. I don't think I could stick to that rule. Natalie Hughes, congratulations on being named our Entrepreneur of the Week. I wish you the very best of luck with the Fashion Digital. Congratulations. Keep us posted on everything you're doing going forward. I love hearing from all of you. If you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send your nomination to me at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. That is no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. As always, you can find me at that email address, but you can also find me at Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. And don't forget to use our hashtag No Limits if you're talking about us online. We love it. I love it when you guys tweet me. I also want to give a huge shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Bancardo, Annie Osakwe, my fabulous research assistant, and the rest of the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind. Josh Cohan, Steve Jones, Andrew Kelb. Thank you, ABC Radio, for helping us make this possible week after week. And thanks to all of you listeners for weighing in, for leaving us notes on social media. Make sure you like us. Make sure you subscribe. It really does help get the word out. The more you tell people you like this, the more people hear it. Thank you. Have a great week. Take care. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.